thank you all. I'm Nancy Updike. Thank you all very much for making the long trek down to this end of the hotel. So as I mentioned, the, um, the title of my talk is Die, Mediocrity, Die. And um, it, it kind of came out of an essay that I wrote um, last year that some of you may have read on Transom about writing for radio. And I got kind of fired up um, doing that because um, I realized that in my experience with writing radio stories, the biggest enemy is not badness, it is okayness, adequacy. And uh, I think the only way to make a story good is to constantly be asking yourself, is there a better piece of tape I could play? Is there a better way to write into this tape, a better way to write out of it? Is there a better beginning, a better ending? And, um, and I think the key to a lot of those questions is, is in the writing, and that that, even more than, than good tape, um, makes the difference between um, a good radio story and one that is just uh, okay. So uh, I, I'd like to start with, with beginnings. Um, and um, have you ever noticed how easy it is to ignore a radio story? This happens insidiously without your even realizing it. The story will start, and you will just find yourself a few minutes later having no idea what happened in the story. You, you, don't, you don't care. It's just voices and noises and your cooking and your you know, uh, dusting and making lists of things to do. And once you get out of the story, um, it's really hard, I find, to get back in because, you, you know, you've missed some plot points. The characters are kind of mysterious. You just think, ah, oh, whatever, I'll wait till the next one comes on, and if that one's interesting, I'll pay attention. So this mental drift, I would argue, is the terrifying enemy that we are all facing when we sit down to write the beginning of a radio story. And um, his demon minions are always trying to intimidate us into making bad choices about how to start the story. Um, you know, like starting, uh, like telling the story chron chronologically, even though that's not the best way to tell this particular story. Or starting with a piece of tape that's kind of boring, but it seems like for some reason we think we have to start with that piece of tape. And with a little more thought, oftentimes you can come up with a way to write into the better piece of tape, the more exciting piece of tape that for some reason you had convinced yourself had to come later. So I'm going to play um, three beginnings, three attempts to defeat this enemy. Until he was seven years old, Daniel Solomon slept sitting up. This wasn't because upright was a particularly comfortable position or because some exotic medical condition prevented him from straightening at the waist. It was just because Daniel didn't have another option. For the first seven years of his life, he lived in a crib in an orphanage in Romania. I was hired to interview men and women in the state of Utah who receive Medicaid support for treatment of mental illnesses generally diagnosed as schizophrenia. I had little understanding of schizophrenia before I began, and I have little more understanding now. I took the job because I had no other. I took the job because I just quit my steady job, my professional job, after realizing that what I wanted more than anything was to put my boss on the floor and stand on his throat and watch him gag. Then my wife moved out, took the kids and everything. 
She said, I've thought about it, and I really think it's the best thing for me at this time in my life. This story is like one of those Russian dolls where there's always a smaller one inside. The smallest doll, the core of the drama, is the fact that Mubarak, a childhood sissy, grew up to be a different kind of sissy than his father. His father is nerdy and bookish. Mubarak's gay. Everything around that core gets bigger and bigger until finally you can't believe the biggest and the smallest have anything to do with each other. The one is so bloated and the other so tiny. At the beginning of this story, Mubarak's parents are married and in love and both prepare to live far from everything they know to be with each other. At the end of the story, they may still be in love, but they're divorced and an ocean apart and not speaking. And Mubarak is caring for his mother the way a husband might. Okay, um, what, uh, what are some of the things that, that the different writers here did to, um, to get readers' attention? Imagery, exactly, exactly. They created images in your mind. Um, what else? Metaphor. Metaphor. Chaos. Chaos is always interesting. What else? Kind of tell the entire story up top. Exactly. Um, you guys don't need me. Um, basically, the, 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 thing, the thing that I really love about the first beginning, um, Elise Spiegel's uh, top two a story she did recently, is that it, it's basically one uh, long um, sort of description of a single surprising fact. This boy slept sitting up for seven years, and she just kind of works this detail. And like you were saying, it's an image. It's a visual image. She really engages your 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 imagination. You sort of, you get to sit in it and think, wow, I mean, would he... You know, how would he? Do, how would you do that? And you know, what are the sort of physical implications of of doing that? And um, you know, she knew that 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 this was not a detail that she wanted to to kind of bury in a later backstory about this kid. She wanted to really put this up front. She knew it could carry the beginning, and that even though we learn nothing else in this top, we don't know the conflict. We don't know the other characters. But there's this compelling, incredible detail sort of drawing you in. Um, the beginning of Scott Carrier's story, which um, I have played before because I just think it's fantastic, uh, the one about giving tests to schizophrenics, it's almost the opposite of, of Elise's kind of spare opening. I mean, he is just cramming information down our throats. I mean... His wife is walking out. He quit his job. He's about to interview schizophrenics. I mean, you really sort of have a feeling by the end, like, is this guy going to make it? You know, like, you, you can't not want to know what happens in the rest of the story. And, again, the, the images are, are key, which, you know, like Elisa's writing, he really, he really creates these, these visions in your mind. You know, he has this sort of... Um, a great description of his rage at his boss, which, you know, sort of immediately kind of channels anyone's rage at any boss they've ever had, but puts it to this incredibly sort of satisfying and, and gruesome image of his boss slowly gagging on the floor under his foot. And then he, he spins, he pivots right from that to tragedy, 
his wife walking out and giving this this line, you know, giving one line of her dialogue that is so um, it's so non-accusatory, it's so sad that you just you know your heart is already broken by the time this starts, and there's just no question you want to know what what comes next. Um, the last beginning is one is one I wrote, and as as Sean said. Um, the the trick was to you know give away the, the ending of the story. In fact, the whole the whole thing. I just said, look, here are all the characters. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to end up. This is a tragedy. And you know the reason to to do that is is that piece of information ends up coloring every other piece of information you hear in the story and gives it this weight. So even moments um, which are sort of small and nuanced and um, uh, you know, maybe don't have <clears throat> excuse me, as much portent as, as you would like to sort of keep people engaged, you still have in the back of your mind where this is going. And the fact that you know where it's going doesn't make you think. I mean, if we were just machines taking in information, you would be like, you know, I have no further need to know. I know what happens. But we're not. I mean, we're emotional beings. And what you really want to know a lot of times in a tragedy is not just what happened, but why it happened, how it happened. This, you know, the sort of path each character takes um, on this road, which is leaning inexorably to this place that they don't want to go. So, okay. And just a tiny aside. Um, again, I just would emphasize that chronology is not necessarily your friend when you're telling a, a story. You should not get wedded to starting at the beginning. Um, okay, but so what if your story has no great tragedy at its core? It has no Romanian orphans. There is no schizophrenia. What do you do? Um, listen to this beginning by by David Kestenbaum. Archimedes lived around 200 BC. He's the guy who, legend has it, shouted Eureka in his bathtub, used mirrors to set an enemy ship on fire, and invented a pump that lifts water with a screw. Those stories may or may not be true, but he was certainly one of the great mathematicians and physicists of ancient times. Archimedes wrote letters describing his work, copies of about a dozen survive, two in just one place, the Archimedes Palimpsest. A palimpsest is a manuscript that's been written on more than once, and this one resides at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. It's the ugliest thing in the collection. It is also by far the most important text manuscript uh, in a palimpsest that the world knows. William Knoll is curator of rare books at the Walters. His shirt suggests he's a little too busy for ironing. We walk through a dark exhibit room in the museum. He picks up a secret phone, well, it looks that way, and a door opens. Okay, I just want to point out that you are all laughing about a story about an ancient mathematician and a manuscript with a weird name. How, how, how did he make this beginning compelling? What did he do? I shall tell you then. <laughs> So, you know, 
he's he's got this ancient mathematician. Why should we care about this guy? Well, he he throws out he throws out these um, you know these compelling details. You know, this guy's got his finger in all sorts of pots. He's um, shouting Eureka in his bathtub. He's sending enemy ships on fire with mirrors. And then, which I thought was very sly, um, uh, Dave says, now these may or may not be true. So, I mean, this is a news story he's doing. He's throwing these details, doing due diligence, saying, look, this isn't fact. But he knows that they're interesting and that they're going to make you engage with this guy. The other thing he does is... He, he uses a really great opening quote. You know, he's got this sort of long setup. He's got to tell you Archimedes. He's got to define a palimpsest. And then he's got this British guy talking about how ugly it is. And it just, it's just comedy. It just really makes you want to, you know, keep listening, partly because you, you just admire him for making you laugh in this story that you didn't think you were going to laugh in. It creates an instant tension in the piece that pulls you in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, he goes from saying it's the ugliest thing to it's incredibly important. So, you you know, you're sort of, you've got that going. And then he tosses off this incredible little description, which also got a laugh. His shirt suggests he's a little too busy for ironing. Now, you, you, you just, you totally get something about this guy from this little description. I mean, one of the things that, that is, is difficult in radio is that you, you know, you don't have the time for, for description that you do, even, even in a short print story. You really have to, have to kind of distill things and choose your details. And I just love this. You know, we have no idea, you know, we don't know how tall, short, anything his shirt suggests he's a little too busy for ironing. We know something about how he looks, but also about his character. It's just really brilliant. And then, you know, and then he kind of takes us into the exhibit, and there's a secret phone. Well, at least it looks that way. I mean, he's really being playful, and you can feel his, um, you can feel his energy in telling the beginning of the story. He's like, come with me. This is interesting. I swear. I swear you will be interested in this. And that energy is a really powerful force that, that we should all draw on um, in writing beginnings because your interest is something that will draw in other people if you do it in a, in a clever way. So I just want to conclude the beginnings section by saying that writing beginnings is, is hard. Um, I find it, it often takes me as long to kind of figure out the beginning and write it as it does to write half of the rest of the story. But that time invested always pays off because the rest of the story is so much easier to write. It just kind of starts to lay out in your brain once you've got a beginning that's really solid. So, moving on. Oh. Do you ever write the beginning after you've written the story? Never. Never, Never not once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know I don't say that no one ever could, um, but I can't. I can't see where the where the story is going unless I see where it starts. I have never ever written a beginning anywhere other than the beginning. <laughs> I do have any trouble with ends because I have no trouble with beginnings, but you never write a conclusion that I can satisfy. We're getting to ends. Um, they're hard, too. They are, they are hard, too. I find them less hard than beginnings. Um, I, I usually try to sort of save a, a little piece of tape for the end that I feel is going to help me. Um, but, yeah, they're hard, too. I have a quick question. If it's into the 
Yes. Yeah. Or they steal your best ideas from the story. So this thing that you've set up to be a surprise, they're sort of like, oh yeah, I already heard about that. Um, I, I often write an intro to my stories before I write the beginning. Um, this, besides preventing all of those, you know, what feel like disasters at the time, um, uh, it also sort of separates out the information that you need to set up the story versus the way the story starts. Um, and I think it's, it, I think it's good, it's good discipline for that. Um, and, um, and I always, I mean, to the extent that you can, and I know that, you know, that, that, that there may be egos involved and sort of, you know, office politics, but I think to the extent that you can take, you know, your work out of the hands of others and keep it in your own hands and, you know, make it, you know, I want I want this to, to, you know, I want to manage my piece from, you know, from cradle to grave. Um, to the extent that you can do that, I would advise you to do that. Um, yeah. Just curious how careful you are in, like, mapping it out. I mean, do you just plunge into the beginning and see where it takes you, or do you have a pretty good idea where it's going to go? You mean after the beginning? Or the beginning well, itself? The beginning, after the beginning, do you just, the beginning is so <clears throat> important that you, do that and then see where the story goes, or are you pretty careful about the I, entire piece and the arc of it? And um, I take a certain amount of care in that. Yeah, um, I, uh, I I just think that that um, once once I once I've written the beginning, and for me the beginning is the first you know the first writing and then the first piece of tape. I find it so much easier to see where I'm going to go because I have a sense overall of you know, what I like and, you know, kind of, you know, what I want to stick in. But the, but the beginning really, um, I mean, you know, this is, this is, um, I mean, I always think it's really ridiculous that, that cliche, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Cause I think a lot of times you do actually, cause people are busy and they forget. Um, <laughs> but, but in a radio story, you really, you really don't get a second chance. So, um, so I find once once I have not only the sort of plot, you know, the sort of actual plot points of the beginning, but the sort of anxiety of the beginning out of the way, then um, you know I can I can kind of cook along much more easily. You lavish the same attention on the announcer intro, the setup. It's not as hard to write because the the intro. You mean the intro before the beginning? Oh, I don't think it's as hard to write as the beginning. Um, because, you know, I'm not going to a piece of tape and, you know, picking the first piece of, you know, there's not picking the writing, picking the tape, there's all of that. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't get the same attention, but it's, I would include, I would include writing the intro in part of, in part of that, as part of that long sort of like grueling sitting down, what do I want to say, what do I want to say, of writing the beginning. Isn't that really your first impression? Is it your first point of contact if you want to book them? I mean, you want to book them twice, right? Yes. So I do care. Um, but also, <laughs> for that reason, um, and, and I do, I do, you know, I do 
put a lot of uh, a lot of thought into it and sort of rewrite. You know, I, I have drafts. You know, I don't just kind of toss something off. Um, but I don't know. Maybe just kind of ego kicks in at some point. It's like, well, somebody else is going to say that part. You know, and you know, and sometimes they're they're you know they're going to rewrite parts of it anyway. So you know, I. I uh, um, I just had a question. What would you feel, or what would you find would be more effective? Because sometimes people want to open a piece maybe with a song, or maybe with a clip of some sound that they have, or maybe just how we just heard right now, just going into it. Mm-hmm. What would you find to be more effective? And um, after finding what would be more effective, when would you introduce maybe your topic or your theme before before you play what you want to be effective or after? You mean uh, introduce the sort of central idea of the story before I play the first piece of tape or after? Um, I think most often before, but like in Elisa's beginning, we don't know, you know, we don't know what the, what the, what the conflict, what the sort of argument she's going to make, what the, what the, you know, what the meat of the story is, you know, she's talking about the Romanian orphan, um, but that the idea of it is so compelling that she, you know, she, she made that choice and I think it totally worked. I almost never start with sound, usually start with writing. Um, and you find a, that to be more effective? I think I just like it better. Mm. I mean, there's tape in the intro sometimes, but the stories almost always seem to start with written narratives spoken out loud by the Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a very sort of writer kind of driven show. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, but I think it's just, a, it's just an aesthetic preference that, that, that we all share rather than a, you know, something posted in the, in the bathroom or something. Um, <laughs> although, I, I mean, I have started stories with sound. I don't want to mislead the people. Um, I'm wondering how you apply this kind of approach to like, repetitive deep reporting, because I find that that's a problem with story. Like, I've had to do a bazillion stories on Northwest Airlines, and it's always the same exact information that has to be thrown into the middle of the story somehow. And a lot of times, my boss is having me follow micro movements of the company. You know, like today they moved one inch in their negotiations with you know whatever union it is. And so I wonder if you have, if there are examples in your own work that you can refer to where you've figured out ways to keep it fresh at the top, even though you know you might have to get to that kind of repetitive base information that's not changing that much. Yes. I did a series of stories about, uh, about Gaza for NPR, um, uh, starting from when Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, going for, say, six or seven months. And, you know, the repetitive information was still kind of sucking. And, um, and, you know, and there was a certain amount of deterioration, um, uh, in, in various areas. Um, but also the, the guy I, w- I was, I was, I was profiling, um, I, I had a number of sort of things that I needed him to be. I needed him to speak English. I needed him to be a businessman. I had all sorts of things I needed. And, um, 
so I ended up following this guy who has a computer store, and one of the hazards of that of that choice, even though he met all these other criteria it needed to to meet, um, is um, not much happens in a computer store. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> there's it's like there's sales and there's stocking, and so. Um, it was just, it just required a lot more strategizing for every story. I mean, the very first story, I, I have some of them in, in, in here. If we have time, I can, I can play some later. But the very first story, um, I sort of opened with, with an argument about, you know, here's, here's where Gaza is now, and here's who this guy is in this thing. And then the next story, I started with with a with a with a scene. You know, he's he's driving in the road, and he's and and he's you know he's kind of a rich guy in in sort of Gaza's you know economy, and he's in his you know nice uh, car. He's stuck behind a donkey cart, and he's um, you know being very funny about how irritating it is to drive in a city street with a donkey cart, um, and so you know the. I mean, I, 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 you just have to kind of constantly be be sort of nagging yourself. You know, what, okay, what is the way that I can sort of, what is the one tiny little thing that's different that I can kind of, you know, insert in there? And and also, I I would say, and I don't, you know, I don't know how how much you know your your editors would go for this, but but I don't think in a story that is that is sort of taking, you know, these sort of micro twists and turns that are a little bit tedious it would be out of place to imply that a little bit in the story, you know, to sort of make clear, you know, this was not, this, this, this was not this sort of big change, but these, this, these endless series of micro changes. Um, that would be my, my best advice without having more information. Um, I want to, I want to move on to talking about writing around tape. Um, and um, writing in and out of tape is, is one of my favorite parts about doing radio stories. It's kind of like Tai Chi. It's sort of this repetitive thing that you do for your entire life that is, that is you know, very simple gestures that it still, every time, takes a lot of concentration not to screw up. And one of the reasons that it, it takes a concentration not to screw up is because this, this urge just sort of comes over me, maybe some of you too, as I'm writing to a piece of tape, which is to summarize the tape, to repeat what's in it, and, and be very sort of pleased with myself that, that I've written something so elegant, and then I will listen back and say, ah, yes, but this person said that. I don't <laughs> need to say that. And, um, you know, this, this instinct is so basic. It's like in there with fight or flight. I don't know. You know, it's like in the reptile brain. And because it's so basic, it, it kind of feels right. You know, if you're going along and, and you, and you kind of, you know, lose focus, you can think, I'm really doing a great job. You know, things are moving along. I'm, I'm feeling good about this. And, you know, and it's only, you know, and, it, and it's not even that I just sort of get the urge to do this. I mean, I do this. I did this last week. I was like, God, that's stupid. You know, I just literally wrote what was in the tape. And so, you know, it feels good, but it's actually incredibly bad. It kills momentum. It kills excitement. It, it drains energy from the story. It is your enemy. Um, so, so here is an example of, um, of writing that works well because it never, ever, ever steps on the tape. This is um, from a story that Robert Krulwich did about a, uh, a biologist who started doing a study on aging. 
And then he decided to find out if there are ages, specific ages, when a typical human being passes from the adventure novelty stage to the routine and the comfortable and the familiar. When does that happen? So to begin, he turned, not surprisingly, to music. We're rolling 30 minutes of non-stop music for you now. Here's Elton John, Tiny Dancer, on 94.9 KCMO. I called up 50 radio stations throughout the United States, and in each case got a hold of the station manager and asked them the same two questions. What's the average age of the music you play? And what's the average age of the people who listen to it? And then to help you follow his logic here, I did talk with Don Daniels. You're the program director? Right, 94.9 KCMO. Uh, We're a 60s, 70s radio station. So that's Elton John, Billy Joel, James yeah, Taylor. Yeah, Four Tops, Temptations, right. And Mr. Daniels told me that in his business, the radio business, the formula they use is breakthrough minus 20. Now that means if, say, Billy Joel... If Billy Joel had his big breakthrough in the... Was it the 60s or the 70s? He's a 70s guy. He's not a, not a 60s guy. Right. So if Billy Joel was red hot, say, in 1976, then minus 20 means that his first fans were born about 20 years earlier, around 1956, because, says Mr. Daniels... You know, the music that you go to high school and college with becomes the music of your life. And commercial radio is built on this principle that when you are 14 to 21 years old, that's when you're wide open to new music and that's when you find your lifelong Billy Joel or whomever, that interest gradually wanes until, Sapolsky learned... By age 35. By age 35, if a hot new musician comes around, no matter how wonderful she is, most people don't care. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, what did he do? Turn it into a conversation. Exactly. Exactly. That is... um, the brilliant way that he writes. He writes to tape in such a way that it feels like he and the person that he's interviewing are this like old married couple. This you know, they they're this vaudeville team and they're kinda handing stuff off to each other and finishing each other's sentences and you know the the the, the whole sort of exchange in the middle about Billy Joel is sixties guy, seventy right. You know, it's like a little comedy routine in there. And he uh, uh, and he's always writing not just to the idea of the piece of tape. He's writing to the exact word. And this is incredibly important. This is another thing that can kill momentum in a, in a story is when you, you know, you kind of have, you have the, the clips in, in your mind and you're like, yeah, I know, I know what that one is. And you write to it and you move on. You write to the next one, you move on. And you listen back and it's just, it's just kind of not working. You don't know why. It's because you're not writing to the word. You're not writing to the way the tape starts. And maybe the tape is starting in a dumb way and you need to cut it in a little further and that's what'll make it work. But writing to the actual tape is key. Yes. When you talk about writing the actual tape, are you sitting in a studio where you can play back the audio while you're actually writing the script? I'm, I'm sitting at my computer um, with, with this exact setup you see here, listening to my tape on, on speakers or on headphones. Do so you pull all of your cuts, or you're just listening to the raw tape? Or you pull, I have pulled the cuts. Okay. Yeah, I've pulled the cuts. Because sometimes, um, if I could digress for just a second, sometimes what I'll do is I'll log on my tape, and then I have my log, and then I write to my log. And then I go back, and I realize, actually, that didn't sound the way that it should have. Do you, is your log an exact transcript? Well, yeah, for the most part. Exactly. For the most part. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, if it works for you and it's not and it's not slowing you down, and you just go back and rewrite it, that's that's fine. Um, but but I don't know. I mean, I I I I would. I love I love cutting tape. It, it I don't know why. Um, so so maybe um, I, I just I just I I have to hear it. I like to hear it. You know I got I got to get in there with it. It's not that that can't work, obviously, um, but it has hazards. How do you measure how much writing you put in between the tape that you use? You know, do you have, do you have a system for like that? Those are too many paragraphs in between this cut and this cut to get from A to B. Um, I don't have a system, but I just try to pay attention to when I'm boring myself, and I don't want to hear from myself anymore. <laughs> um, and then I, you know, think, okay, go to a piece of tape. It's time. Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, we have to ask Robert himself, but how many times you think that he would have to do that track? Can he do it all the way through? First take? What, yeah, once he knows his cuts, or does he, is it just sort of an inch-by-inch inch process where you're calibrating every little in and out as you go? You mean in terms of, of reading the script and his, and his delivery, or in terms of making the script work with the tape? I'm thinking in terms of producing that piece from the point where he had all his clips in the timeline on the computer, and he's got a script that he wrote, and he's got to integrate that script and his voice and with those cuts and make it all kind of jump from here to there, you know, the way it is, just perfect. And you're wondering if he records it multiple times? or My guess, and I do not know this, is mostly not. I bet what he does, and I'm totally talking out of my ass since he's not here, but I bet what he does is, um, is he reads his script aloud and plays the tape. And you know, tweaks things kind of before he he goes to record his voice tracks. I wonder where the breaks are in that, particularly in that stretch where he kind of slyly turns to the guy and then comes back talking to you. Like because it sounds as though he might have taken part of the conversation and just like you know tracked it right up to the point where. In the interview, he then turns into, you know? Exactly. But you can't tell. You can't tell. The fact that you can't tell is just magic. Yes. I mean, some people some people kind of disapprove, and they're like, well, we should know when we're this and when we're that. I don't. <laughs> I don't. Do, do you have an example of making this work with cuts that are longer than three and a half seconds? No, because he's, I mean, he's got a technique that, that if, how do you do this without sounding like him, by which I mean... With it, without that sort of rapid fire. It's like ding, 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 and you've got 17 cuts of tape in a minute. But I would venture to say that most of us are working with cuts of tape that are 17 to 35 seconds. Is there a way to do the same thing with longer cuts of tape? Yes. I don't have an example to play. <laughs> I don't you think. Talk well, you talk about it, or um, how do you do it where you've got somebody and they've got a monologue? that runs, you know, that's really interesting, runs 45 seconds, and you want to drop that in at a point of your story, how do you use this technique, or do you have a different technique for writing longer strips of tape? I don't think it's a different technique. I think, I think the principle is, is the same, which is, that, which is that you are... I mean, one of, the, one of the things he does that you can totally do with longer pieces of tape is he, um, he will write in sentence fragments... And he'll write, he'll write sort of, you know, 
up to a certain point in the sentence and then hand it off to to the other person and you can do that with you know the other person kind of you know launching into uh you know a 17 second story or you know news bite um it, it's it's the same it's the same idea that you that you just you you are writing to the exact word and that you if you want to get this 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 technique if you want to get this sound that you consciously make an effort to say okay i want to i want to sort of um uh um i want to make it feel like like we're in this we're telling this story together like we're two people in a room talking to you and we're both telling this story you just keep that in your mind um when you have an when you like have an interview with a person and you're writing narration for the interview when is it appropriate to restate the question that you asked them on on tape yeah i mean like in your narration when you're rewriting your narration for a specific interview on tape when is it appropriate to restate the question that you asked them re re restate it so that you sound better or what I mean, like, should you include the question that you asked them? Uh, sometimes, sure. Yeah, I don't think that's a problem. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a problem. Um, the thing I liked about what he said was he, he like, he's, it seemed like there was a lot of kind of potentially boring information where, where a lot of times your subject is just trying to sound important because they're nervous about being on the air. And he's like the best conversationalist in the world. So it's like holding your, your guest's hand to, I mean, it, I don't know. Making them be more interesting than they are. Yeah, like, like so often when you interview someone, they're nervous and they're trying to sound a certain way. And it just sucks automatically a lot of times because of that. And there's like a sort of boring sort of monotone that comes in. And so yeah, and one of the things that that he and 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 David Kestenbaum, I'm, I'm going to play play um, another clip of his in, in a second. I think they are models. Um, they're both science writers, and they're both models for a how to engage you in things that you never thought you would be interested in, and b um, engage their their interview subjects probably in a way that they're not used to to being engaged in both of the in in, in stories of both of them you'll hear them kind of you know t tease their subjects a little bit or kind of prod them and um and it, it you know they'll get they'll get them laughing and it's really it's really lovely it really um uh makes the stories work very well. So I want to move on to this to this um, bit of, of David Kestenbaum, because one of the, one of the things that that um, that Krulwich is very good at, that Dave Kestenbaum is also really good at, is writing out of tape in an interesting way, which is something I think we all forget to do sometimes. You know, you've played the tape, you've written into it. Ugh, let's just move on. You know, you don't want to worry about it. Um, but it really, it, again, it's such a pleasure as you're as you're listening um, when people do that. So, um, so here is another clip from this story of David's that I really like about the Archimedes palimpsest. Um, and, because the whole story is just full of great writing. And um, it turns out that, uh, that centuries after Archimedes died, um, someone half erased what he had written and wrote a Christian prayer book on top of it. And the text underneath could only be read by a special scanner. And the scan revealed something else. The name of the scribe who erased the Archimedes text and wrote prayers over top. William Knoll at the Walters Art Museum says the man signed his handiwork. It just popped up. It's um, a guy called Johannes Myronas. 
Johannes Myronas, destroyer of ancient texts. William Noel says he does not think Myronas, you jerk. No, I think I read his name and I think what a gift he gave us. Uh, because if he hadn't pulled these ancient texts together and he hadn't given them a sort of Christian disguise, they would, have, they would have been destroyed another way. Few things survive for 2,000 years. Governments don't last that long. It was love of math that preserved Archimedes' work for the first millennium and love of God that carried it to the present. Okay, what did he do? What did David Kestenbaum do? Well, first he repeated the guy's name. Yes. Yes. He repeated his name, and then what? He said something funny. Yeah. I mean, he really sort of, you know, put, uh, you know, wrote a, a funny little response to sort of, you know, the emotion that you would think is, is, uh, is sort of floating around in this, this, this archive about who this guy is. You know, Johannes Myronas. My God, man, what have you done? And, um, you know, and he, and he uses that to, to sort of pivot to, um, to the last piece of tape where, where, you know, where he gives the chance, the, the, you know, the, uh, the curator a chance to, to respond and say, hey, you know, is this how you felt? And he says, no, that's not how I felt, actually. So, you know, he sort of sets up, yes, he, you know, he's this bad guy, he raised the text. And then the guy comes in and says, actually, no, see it this other way. And, and the writing that, that, um, that David ends the story with, I think, is just, is just great because it, 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 it reminds you, um, it, just, it just sort of pulls back, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the crane shot where you, he says, you know, look, we've been, we've been talking about this text and it's so small and, you know, and he just reminds us, you know, wow, this has survived for more than 2,000 years. That is really something. And, uh, and it's, it's poetic. It's great. It's, it's, uh, it's just really um, a beautiful way to end the story. So... Basically, when you're when you're when you're writing when you're writing around tape, I, I find it very useful to sort of go over in my mind. Um, you know that old print reporter list of of the questions. You know what you should be getting in a story: who, what, where, when, why. Um, who is speaking? Can I say anything in script that will help people understand who this person is? Why I should care about them? See them better? Um, what are they saying? Do I need to say anything in script, either before or after, to, to enhance it, to make it more pointed, to make clear the idea that is in this piece of tape? Where, when, when, are, when are they talking? Where are they? Where are they? You know, is, is this something I need to include where this conversation is or when it's happening? And most importantly, why? Why am I playing this piece of tape? It's like, you know, it's like, the, it's like the Passover question, you know, why, you know, why, how is this piece of tape different from every other piece of tape that I, that I could be playing at this time? And, and, and that question, you have to keep asking yourself because you really don't want your listeners to be asking that, you know, why am I listening to this? Um, you want to constantly be sort of anticipating what information they need to know what they're listening to and why they're listening to it. Remember, you were there. You were on the scene. You saw things we didn't see. You understood things about spending time with these people that, that we are not going to understand unless you tell us. So, um, Nancy, yeah. And yet you hear often sometimes that tape is introduced without any of that, and then backfilling somehow. And it seems like the technique is, is to get people to 
engage and wonder who this is, what they're saying. Did you ever employ that or is it taboo with your do something out of context is have I ever played something and not identified who is speaking? Yeah. We talk about that technique because I hear it. You know, you hear it like yeah. the voice will come out of the blue and you're expected, your listeners are expected to kind of. David Kessenbaum did it in the, in the beginning of the Archimedes story. You hear the guy's voice. He says, it's the ugliest thing we've got. And, you know, but it's very important. And then he identifies him. And, you know, the fact that he's saying this, this, uh, this provocative quote, um, sort of gives him gives him license to then come in at the end and say here's this guy here's how he relates to this story um i think yeah definitely it's so you can hang the listener out occasionally. yeah 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 um yes yes i mean i think i think that that is the the thing you have to ask yourself if you're if you're using this this technique of playing a certain amount of audio before um, explaining what's going on, you know, you really have to sort of say, well, is this too long? You know, is it, is it really gripping enough? Is it, but yeah, it can work for sure. There's, a, there's another technique that's also employed in using, using a piece of tape and then going straight to another piece of tape with somebody sort of like, sort of agree, disagree. Totally. Totally. Uh, something that's actually really beautiful to do is um, if you get two or more people to tell the same story and intercut, you know, their their different um, versions of it. Um, it just it, it almost always works really well and uh, and is entertaining. I'm wondering if that kind of conversational interaction between the reporter and the tape is a style that's maybe not always appropriate. I mean, Krolich and Kessenbaum it really works for them, but maybe with some subjects it would feel kind of too intimate to have the reporter conversing with the tape in that way, or do you think it always works? Do I think it always works in an interview or as tape? As a part of your story, and as a way to, as a way to write into a, a piece of tape. Um, yeah, there's, cer- there's, certainly, there's certainly lots of, of tape um, um, I know from my own stories, but I'm sure in other people's stories that, you know, ends up on the cutting room floor because it just, uh, it just doesn't sound right or... I mean, I'm talking about that interplay between reporter and, and, and tape that yeah. kind of feels like too familiar maybe for, I mean, it might, with, some, with another reporter it might sound strained if you're trying to have that banter kind of... Or if the story's about a murder. Right. Wait, why wouldn't you talk to a... Wait, I don't understand. If it's a story about a murder. It might be a question of tone. Like, oh, he smashed his head in? Um, well, <laughs> I think just because you're interacting with a person on tape doesn't mean you're always kind of buddy-buddy with them. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's particular to these two stories. But, but certainly, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, I have heard stories and, and I've done stories where, you know, I've asked people questions on tape and, you know, we're not chumming around. Um, you know, I think you can easily accommodate a, a very serious story and still do that. In fact, I think one of the nice things about radio that you can't get from print is that you can hear somebody press the subject with a follow-up question and say, wait, I, you know, that's, that doesn't seem to be right. Which, um, you know, aside from the sort of dramatic tension, I think is good journalism. So I guess that, does that answer? Yeah. Yeah. 
curious about your thoughts on technique as a model. Um, I mean, I got an edit and once and the guy was like, well, let's take a page from, you know, Robert Krolwich or from Jad Murad from Radio Lab. You know, and, and you know, I think that's great to experiment with technique, but I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, your background with This American Life and common criticism later is like, well, everybody's trying to sound like Ira. I mean, is this a situation where it's like, well, everybody's trying to sound like Robert Krolwich and there's only one Krolwich? I think the... Um I mean, we would all sound like jackasses if we tried to sound like Robert Krulwich. Um I think, uh, I think the, um, I don't know, maybe some of you guys can pull it off. I know I can't. Um, I think what, what, you know, what you want to, what you want to take from, from him, what, what, what I try to learn from him is, um, is, is, is his, is his, his sense of play in his writing and um, and his and his and his drive, you know, his energy and his drive to make you engaged in things you might not otherwise be engaged with, um, and um, I think you can learn a tremendous amount from people that you know nobody would, if they listen to your story, think, aha, you know, that's a cruel witch moment. Um, unless you kind of parsed it out for them, like, hey, you know, I kind of took this idea and I, I did it my way. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think... I don't think mimicry is the goal, more sort of, you know, getting excited about the possibilities and, and seeing how you can work them into your own stories is, is more the goal. I was going to say, maybe part of it is that they... I think most of us have a kind of passion and engagement when we collect tape, and then it's time to write the script, and we go into this other mode, and you can, they're staying with the feeling that they probably had in that live moment, and that's what we feel, so however we do it, can maintain a sense of connection to your tape, we'll hear it as a listener. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I think... I think writing a story as quickly after you've gathered the tape as possible is part of that, um, in my experience. Um, um, and also, um, I don't know, you, you guys are probably, I mean, I, you know, I would say, you know, log, log your own tape, you know, listen back. Um, I don't know if, if any of you have the option to have someone else do it, but um, the, the, more, the more you you listen back, the more you can kind of get into like, oh yeah, this happened and that happened. And um, all right, I'm gonna boogie onward. Um, okay, so so I wanna I wanna play some tape. Sometimes you get really good tape. And more often in my experience, I'm sure this doesn't happen to any of you. Um, I get tape that's kind of so-so, but you still have to make it work. And I mean, it's so-so in the sense that, you know, it's not terrible, but it's just not spectacular. It's not like, wow, I could play two minutes of this and without writing anything around it. And people would just be like, whoa, this is great. That is, is, is pretty rare. I think, you know, writing is the is the is the rescue for that much more common problem. So, so uh, I want to play part of a story I did. Um, 
It's from a This American Life show called The Golden Apple. It's about 24 hours at this all-night diner in Chicago. I took the very early morning shift. And a lot of the people I talked to, besides the fact that it was early morning, um, were not um, natural storytellers. Every morning I'm here between 4.30 and 5. I love the Golden Apple. They're wonderful people. They got good food. And uh, that's it. This is how Joe Molica ends every sentence. And uh, that's it. Or sometimes. That's all I could tell you. Joe's not used to talking about himself. His story comes out bit by bit. Our entire conversation takes place in a different era. He's completely unselfconscious about calling me honey. He bangs on his coffee cup with his spoon to get the waitress's attention for a refill. Please don't try this at home. But he gets away with it. I do construction, remodeling, rehab, and that's what I do. I retired, I'm 78 years old, and I gave the business to my two sons, and that's it. How did you start the, that business? To my dad. My dad done the same thing when I was, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old. I started working for him. He was paying me a dime an hour, and that was it clean up, sweep up the floors that he's working on. What else you want to know, honey? So uh, clearly I had to drag information out of this man. Um, and uh, I just wrote that into the script. Um, you know, this guy's not used to talking. He acts as though whatever he's telling you right now is the last thing he will have to say ever, and uh, that's it. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, just write that in with his sort of endearing retro sexism, and um, and and his taciturnness becomes part of the story. Um, you know, when you when you when you hear him speak in these clipped sentences, it's it's revealing of his character rather than being this sort of frustrating. You're kind of waiting for him to like get going on, on a great on a great story. So, okay, now I want to play you. Now I want to play you a piece of tape without any script set up and um, and see what you think. I want the gunpowder chicken <laughs> number eight. Yeah, number eight. What'd you think? Kind of hard to hear, huh? It's confusing. You have no idea what's going on. You have no investment in this tape whatsoever, right? So this piece of tape, this tiny little piece of tape, um, that plus some ambient sound was what I had to work with to describe the green zone in Iraq. And, um, you know, I, I had, you know, been back there several times and I, you know, recorded a couple of little scenes, but they were kind of lame and they didn't really say anything about the place. I had done, I swear to God, like 10 of these sort of stand-ups where it's like, I'm standing in the middle of the green zone, you know, next to the PX where the soldiers buy their, you know, condoms and DVDs. And, um, you know, it just all sounded awful. And even though I was in the place when I was saying it, it didn't really give you any sense of the place perversely and uh and I was just kind of like what okay what 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 am I gonna do and then I thought aha I can describe it I can use the power of language to convey this place you know and just put the ambience in and just write what is this place like so here's what I did 
The green zone is a sprawl like Los Angeles, a big, hot, paved sprawl full of Humvees and SUVs, and men and women jogging along the wide roads in shorts. You never see that anywhere else in Baghdad. There's a disco at the Al Rashid Hotel on Saturday nights in the green zone, karaoke on Fridays, taekwondo, an internet cafe, and a long outdoor flea market with Iraqi kids selling CDs or movies and porn on DVD, fanny packs, makeup, satellite dishes, also a variety of Saddam-themed lighters and watches. It seems the final stage of a brutal dictatorship is kitsch. A few restaurants have also sprung up in the green zone, including a Chinese place that is so obscurely located, it's like the gay bars of the 50s. You have to go with someone who already knows where it is. Otherwise, why would you ever walk through the chipped opening in the stone wall next to the hospital and go down the long, rubble-filled alley? And if you did, how would you know to make a left into the small, crab-grassy courtyard with plastic chairs and tables with boxes of tissue on them? In any other part of the world, this place would not survive. In addition to its difficult-to-find entrance, the restaurant is right next to a helipad. But this place is thriving. It is a monument to the power of word of mouth and to the desperation created by the fact that daily fare for most Americans in the green zone is meals at a cafeteria where food is prepared for thousands of people at a time. Dragon Chinese Restaurant is also a testament to the axiom, which I'm coining here, that Kung Pao chicken will always find a way to exist wherever Americans are present. What the Kung Pao chicken? <laughs> Number eight? Yeah. Number eight. Okay, so what's different? <laughs> About a minute and a half of writing. Um, and so now this, this one tiny little piece of tape that's barely audible and that just kind of, you know, is floating in, in, the, you know, in the world if it has no setup, it's the punchline to a joke. It's a symbol of the American presence uh, in Iraq. Uh, and it's, um, you know, and it, it just even that one little bit does situate you in this place, even though it's three seconds long and the section itself is, I think, a minute 37. So... Um, what I have found um, many times is that um, writing can turn a tape's weakness into its strength. You just have to strategize and, um, and keep asking yourself, okay, what did I see? What did this, what did this moment mean when, when it happened? Um, uh, and, and even if it's not clear from the tape, is there a way for me to, to make it clear and to give it the meaning that, that it should have? Um, How you stretch it, like, just one level path, because you could say, like, you know, you could just simply say, Kung Pao Chicken will always find a place to survive in America's present, but, but you just add that extra, like, calling it an axiom, and then saying that you came up with the axiom, and then saying. Actually, my favorite part of the tape is when the guy says, number eight. You know, because it's like being in any Chinese restaurant in America where he's like, yeah, I'm going to get the 37, you know, and like you, you all, you know, understand each other. Um, if I can just say one thing about the Chinese restaurant there, there were, it was run by, by Chinese people, you know, who, who had come and, um, you know, sort of smelled opportunity. And, um, and I had a conversation with, um, with the Iraqi waiters. Um, they sort of translated for me 
with the with the Chinese guy who owned the place, and we had this this incredible conversation, which sadly did not make it into the into the into the story, where the um, I would ask a question, and the guy the guy the Iraqi guy who spoke no Chinese would would translate it into. The, the the sort of like the pidgin English that the Chinese guy would understand, and then the Chinese guy would speak in pidgin English that the Iraqi guy would understand, and he would translate it back to there, like there was no different languages happening. It was all <laughs> one language translation, um, and it was really uh, beautiful. Um, so, and I just want to say one 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 quick thing and play a little bit of tape. Um, um, because the the easiest way to write in a story is if you get good tape, and um, and I just want to play um, uh, another clip from this 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 show I did about Iraq, and then tell the backstory about about how I got the tape. The U.S. military and the private security contractors working in Iraq, who are often ex-military themselves, usually get along, but not always. I was driving around Baghdad International Airport on a Tuesday afternoon with Dave Shu, a six-foot-four former middle school social studies teacher, former army sergeant, current employee of Custer Battles, when he pulled up next to two guys jogging in gray t-shirts that said Army. Hey, guys. Got a minute? I'm not supposed to be running back here, fellas. Well, number one says me, okay? Hey, my boss. Well, uh, My boss is Major General Dempsey, okay, who's well, in charge of the five million people that are in the city of Baghdad. Well, Major, Di- Major Dempsey then has Major also. Major General Dempsey. Well, Major General Dempsey then is the one who informed us. As a matter of fact, MOTC, Ministry oh, of Transportation. Okay. Dave climbed down from his truck, and this became a 10 minute argument, complete with finger pointing, getting in each other's faces, almost touching chests. There are tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers living on the airport grounds, which are huge, 11 square miles. And many of them don't realize that even though the airport is used by military helicopters and planes, it's also a civilian airport, guarded in part by a civilian company. And some areas are off limits, even to U.S. soldiers. So Dave spends a lot of time kicking people out of places. Very few respond graciously. Great. Number one, I ain't in your army, okay? Now, I came up here and said, hey, how about you doing me a favor? Now, you want to make it an issue, we can make it an okay, issue. make it an issue. Now, all, let me tell you something, Major. No, you let me tell you. Hey, tell me. But I'm let me you. tell you. Those right. I pulled up to you. I asked you politely. Yeah. You, you got an attitude. You did. Right? I got an attitude. I've got civilians that have been here a couple months. We've I've been, been here, here since freaking July, pal. Oh, whoopty do. How long you been here? Good for you. Mark. You're doing your job. But let me tell you yeah, something. Why, why I ask you politely. Now, if you got to make an issue out of it, why don't we take it on up to Mayor Seller? But right now, right I'm, now, I'm right. telling you, you okay. are unauthorized to be okay. here. You got that? I got that. Then you're move really out. Me. F*** you. It's just one of those moments when you just think... Thank you, God. (laughs) What do you do if you have a moment like that and the person explicitly says to you, now you're not going to use that, right? Oh, he did. (laughs) He said that afterward. After. He doesn't have any say over what I use or not use. You don't feel um, a responsibility. Well, let me tell you this. Um, by the time this argument happened, I had spent three, maybe four hours with this guy. 
He didn't like reporters. I tried to charm him. He was not charmed. He kept asking me to turn off the tape machine, which I did every time. But I talked him back into, you know, letting me turn it back on. He made it clear he didn't want to be escorting me all over the airport. He made it clear that I was an annoyance to him. But, I mean, he was just sick of me. He was sick of having, he was sick of me from the moment he saw me, and he was sick of me four hours later. (laughs) But by the time this argument happened, he was so used to being sick of me that he didn't ask me to turn off the tape machine. I was not hiding the microphone. I mean, my microphone is like this big, and it was, I was sitting in the car, and I had it pointed like this. They were standing right out the car. Neither one of them said, you know, turn off the tape machine, and I didn't. And, you know, for him to say to me afterward, you're not going to use that, dude. <laughs> like, you, you already told me four times before not to turn off the tape machine if you had wanted me to turn, and every time I turned it off. But if you... I didn't need to remind him. I did not need to remind him. I think I laughed. <laughs> Actually, what I think he said is uh, he made some joke about how, hey, how about you want to give me that tape? And I, that's when I laughed. What did he like? Say again? What did he like? What did he like? About me? No, it sounds like you didn't like people. You said you didn't like journalists. Oh, I feel like if you don't like journalists, there's a whole world of other things to like. You know, I mean, you know, he he liked his girlfriend, and you know, he liked his buddy who he came to Iraq with, and you know, I mean, we we had very long conversations, and and he, you know, he he did sort of let his guard down slowly, uh, um, um, but you know. This, you know, this was not, you know, this was not something he, he, he gave to me because he's like, hey, this will be good for your story. I mean, <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was not pleased to have me along. Um, and do, you have to be will- do you have to be willing to assume the interview's over if you use tape with somebody? If, you're, if like someone's like, don't use that, and you're like, I'm going to, do you just think, I have to be okay with this being done? It depends. Sometimes people will talk to you even after that. Do you, in your mind, think I'm going to gamble that they'll just leave me here now? Or wait, I don't understand the question. I'm just saying, like sometimes people get mad. Yeah. Okay, I know you're going to use that tape. I don't want you to. So I'm not. We're done. I'm not hanging out with you anymore. Yeah. You consciously think I'm, I got enough. I don't care if he drops. If he's done with me. Well. I didn't need to spend any more time with him after that. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But if I had, I just would have gone on super extra charm offensive and, you know, you know, I mean, without lying, but just, you know, I would have tried to, tried to make it continue. If he says no, he says no. But, you know, try, 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 try. Did you go into that recording session knowing that the story was about this controversy, this power struggle, or was that kind of like a gift from God? You're like, that's my story right there. Why were you with the guy in the first place? You know, I, I mean, I was there doing a story about private contractors, and, and the whole, you know, the whole project was, was a little bit open-ended. It's like, just get inside these guys' world and, and see what happens. So, you know, it was one of those things where a lot of things that happened up to that point were, were plenty fascinating because nobody knew what, what these people's lives were like. 
Um, and, and so, you know, if this hadn't happened, maybe I would have used some of the other tape of this guy. Cause you know, there was, there was just a ton of, of material just sort of seeing, you know, seeing the whole world that they were, that they were operating in. Um, and I, I did not go in looking for that at all. I had, had no idea. I have a very quick question about always uh, keeping your microphone off, obviously unless you're told so explicitly to turn it off, but keeping your tape machine running. Have you caught yourself in situations where you just afterwards, if only and I've been running my tape, or do you run it, run it all the time no matter what? I have... So that limit, like in Iraq, you're only going to have, you know, and you only have so many batteries, so, many, so much tape, and so on. I have, um, oh, believe me, talk about bring extra batteries. I mean, I was carrying like 20 pounds of extra equipment because I did not want to run out of batteries um, and was obsessed with not running out of batteries or tape or anything. Um, that has happened to me um, uh, and other things equally bad. For instance, I reported an entire documentary got back and none of the tape was usable and went back and recorded it again. Um, it hasn't happened that often, though, because I am pretty... I never use the pause button. I think that is the devil, because you think you're recording. Um, but it has happened, but not that often. And if somebody tells me to take, turn off my tape machine, the, the on, whatever I'm saying out of my mouth, the only thing I'm thinking of is, how do I get this back on? How do I get this back on? How do I get this back on? Because you never know when they're going to say something really good, and you don't want to miss it. I'm curious when you're doing narration, when you decide to write in the first person and include yourself as a character in the piece, and when you write you know, from the third person at a remote. Um, sometimes it's dictated by the, by the, um, by the editor. Some editors won't let you. Um, and, um, I don't know. I just try to, I mean, I, I just try to do it so that it, you know, I mean, sometimes it's awkward not to use the first person and sometimes it's annoying to use it. And I just try to avoid those both of those outcomes. How much do you think that the tension in that argument was, was raised and escalated because you were there recording it? Oh, I think, I, I think that was a factor. Um, not, I, I think not even, I think not even so much that I was a reporter, but that I was a woman. And there's, there were so few women in, in that, you know, in that world of, of private contractors in Iraq that there was really, you know, it was really weird. I mean, it just, you know, just walking into any room, there was this effect. It was like, woman in the room, woman in the room. You know, just, re- it, it, it did, it did, um, it, it, it was a factor. And I think their, you know, their egos would already have been involved. But I don't, I mean, just a vibe. It's not like I asked either one of them about it afterward. But it was just a vibe that, that, that their egos were even more sort of, you know, I'm not going to, you know... I'm not going to back down in front of the chick. Um, I think that that was that was uh, that was definitely a factor. Um, I just want to say one one thing um, about about the the sort of <laughs> the moral the moral of of this story, which is that 
I have really found, and, and I know that, that it's not always possible, you know, news stories sometimes have very tight turnaround deadlines. Um, but I have really found again and again that um, the best way to get good tape is to hang around as long as you possibly can, way, way past the point that they have dropped like 10 or 20 hints that they don't want you to be there anymore. Um, uh, Margie, Margie Rockland, who, um, who writes celebrity profiles for big magazines, once told me that her reporting technique was to hang around with the person literally until they threw her out the door. <laughs> and she said, you know, I just, I don't know any other way to report. And I, you know, I, I do find that, you know, that, that sort of comfort, you know, kind of paying attention to the other person's comfort or your own is the enemy of good reporting because, you know, it's not, it's not going to feel good a lot of the time. Like people are going to, find you annoying and you are going to be bored. Um, and even sometimes, you know, you know, you can, you can have, you can, you know, you can have an interview that goes really well and you'll think, God, I've got everything I need. I've got more than I need. And, and I, I, in every interview I do, I get to a point where I feel like I'm done, man, I'm done here. Let me go. And, um, I just, I just, I, I, I view it as, as a, as a, as a bad temptation and I force myself to stay past that point. And sometimes nothing interesting happen, happens afterward. And I just sort of view that as, as the price I pay because a lot of times something interesting does happen from staying around longer than you want to. You think of extra questions you think of some person that you want to talk to that this person will be able to put you in touch with, some scene unfolds. Um, it's just spending time and keeping your eyes and ears open with someone for as long as possible is, is, um, is key. If, in fact, if I can just say one more, one more thing. Um, um, have you all read Malcolm X? Alex Haley has an essay at the end of Malcolm X um, which is fascinating. Um, and he talks about how, if you've read the, fir the first chapter of Malcolm X, it's, it's, it's all about his mother and his family, and it's just like you, you just enter this world and every single fact is completely gripping. And Alex Haley, in, in, his, in his afterward essay, writes about how he was interviewing Malcolm X for weeks, and the man would just come and spew political rhetoric and, you know, and speak in, in, you know, give his sort of stump speech or just kind of react to something that had happened to the, on the news that day. All of it completely and utterly unusable. Weeks he was spending with this guy for hours at a time because, you know, Malcolm X is like, he's a speaker. I mean, once he got going, like, he would talk for four hours, say nothing usable, and then be like, I'm exhausted, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and one day... Um, uh, Haley turned to him and said, tell me about your mother. And the whole first chapter just came out. This was after weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, I read that and just felt like, you are my hero. Um, so, so yeah, I would say stick around. And um, I think that's all we have time for, right? <laughs>